Welcome to Library Land, a podcast about libraries, literature, and whatever strikes our fancy. We have a number of hosts, so the voices you hear may change from segment to segment. We want to hear from you, too, and maybe use your feedback in the show. On Twitter, we're at LibraryLandPod. On Facebook, we're LibraryLand Podcast. And our blog is librarylandpodcast.blogspot.com. We'd love to hear your actual voice if you'd like to record a little something and attach it to an email to libraryland at outlook.com. Thank you for joining us. We're in 741.5, subject heading graphic novels. Graphic novels are one of the more polarizing formats that we have. You'll have people tell you that they are nothing of substance, that they're little kitty things and you'll never get anything real out of them, all the way to people telling you that they have all the potential for literature as anything else. You'll have people telling you that they shouldn't be in libraries, at least not in over in the adult section, because it's just superhero stuff. And other people will gladly tell you that there's so much more than superheroes. My name is Scott Bonner. I'm the director of Ferguson Library. And I'm Judith Plant. And I'm Rania, a librarian and MLIS student. So I thought I'd start this conversation off kind of um, talking a little bit about what our individual experiences are with comics. I don't know if either of you guys are comic readers, current or past, but I'm a big comic book fan. I first started reading comics when I was about 13 years old, maybe a little bit earlier. And at that time, I was reading Archie and Richie Rich and Little Lulu and um, Mad Magazine. So those kinds of things I was reading, I was heavily, heavily into them for many, many years, and then stopped reading comics when I got into my um, late teens and didn't even think about them for years and years and years until in the DC universe, Jeff Johns uh, launched Blackest Night, I was at San Diego Comic-Con, and I was looking for a place to sit down, and I wandered into the room where Jeff Johns was talking about Blackest Night in the Green Lantern universe and across the rest of the DCU, and I was mesmerized. I was spellbound, and it sucked me right back into comics, and I immediately had to run out and buy Jeff Johns' complete run of Green Lantern and all the Blackest Night books, and a monster was born after that. So that's my uh, that's my little comic book background. What about you guys? The first I remember being exposed to comics in any meaningful way whenever I was 13 or 14, which would have been like 83 or 84 or 84 or 85. I went to stay the few weeks with my biological father down in Springfield, Missouri. And while I was down there, my half-brother Clint was a comic collector. He had a garage full of comics, uh, and at my dad's place he had a few boxes worth of comics, and I can't remember anything else from that summer. As far as I can remember, I did nothing but lay around and read comics all day, every day, and it was all great classic X-Men and Doctor Strange and mostly Marvel uh, with a few DC there. The first time I can remember seeing comics collected into, into graphic novel format would be a couple of years later. A friend of mine suggested that I read Dark Knight Returns, and that was a revelation because it took comics to a totally different space mm-hmm. um, and changed the way I think about them entirely. 
And then years later, whenever I was an adult, probably in my late 20s, you know, I had read comics off and on, never could really afford to collect them. And so it was really just like whenever I had access to graphic novels I could check out from the library or a friend that had comics to borrow. You know, I read all of Wolverine series in college because a friend of mine was a goofy fanboy of Wolverine and had every single Wolverine in a crate by his bedside every day. <laughs> and so I borrowed a whole <laughs> lot of Wolverine. But the first time that I can remember really thinking of graphic novels as something that could be more than superheroes, not that I'm down, downing superheroes because, I mean, that there's some legitimate powerful stuff there, but the first time I could think of it as being, you know, potentially approaching literature would be in my late 20s probably when I first read Mouse, M-A-U-S by Art mm. Spiegelman. Mm. And I was doing, actually I must have been in my early 20s, I must have been in college. I was doing a research paper on how there is a collection of, pathologies is too strong a word, but a collection of behaviors associated with survivors of the Nazi death camps. Um, mm. The ones that moved to the U.S. And then for the rest of their lives, many of them had problems with very specific kinds of hoarding and always having a, a bug bug out bag by the door and having this kind of weird mistrustful relationship with authority and that kind of thing. And so I was writing a news, uh, research paper on that and came across Mouse because Mouse Part 1 is the father's survival of Auschwitz and Mouse Part 2 is the son's story of what it's like to grow up wow. in a home uh, run by survivors. And it was life-changing in a lot of ways as far as how I thought of literature and how I thought of uh, graphic novels. And I've been reading them off and on ever since. You know, essentially, I still can't really afford to buy comic books, so I don't get a monthly. Um, but I do get graphic novels from the library at every chance I get, and I go buy the ones that I think are really awesome that I want my kids to read, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what about you, Rania? So my introduction to comic books and graphic novels and things like that would have been when I was a kid. The uh, house that we lived in at the time had a storage space. It was next to the garage and in this storage space we put like all these boxes of books and it seemed like every member of my family had a box of books that just didn't fit on the bookshelves. But there was a, a box of my dad's stuff and I would regularly just dive into that and pull out what I could. And so I ended up reading like all these uh, old, old, you know, torn apart issues of classics illustrated, like War of the Worlds and, and his old weird tales. And there was some hot stuff and some Archie and Casper stuff in there too. And later on, we, we moved, we moved to uh, Joplin. So also Southwest Missouri. At that time, Joplin didn't have a comic book shop. Uh, there was one guy selling comics at the flea market which was every Saturday and Sunday. Literally out of the back of his car. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> it was like magic, though. I mean, you had these rows and rows of comic books, and my mom didn't say no, so Randy, because I was a kid at the time, this is like the mid-'80s, uh, he got me set up with things like uh, Power Pack and New Mutants and uh, things that were geared toward kids. <laughs> Then he set me up later with ElfQuest and Atari Force and some X-Men and so on and so forth. So I have this clear memory of reading these things geared toward kids and graduating to like Frank Miller and Alan Moore, like Dark Knight Returns and Alan Moore's Watchmen and 
those are the ones that I would hide under the bed. <laughs> and the other ones are the ones that I would read out in the open. Those were, you know, acceptable. But in terms of graphic novels and when I thought graphic novel was like an actual format rather than, you know, six issues of a comic strung together in a storyline, which, you know, that's also acceptable, would be, I think, Ghost World. I think the movie came out about 2000, 2001, and I didn't know it had been a graphic novel. I was on a visit with my sister, and we ended up going to see this movie, and I loved it. And then I found the graphic novel after that, and I thought, oh, well, this is a really good way of telling a story, and it's not limited to the superhero world. So. Right, and, and it's funny because most people don't realize how much of what they see in the movies and on TV are actually based on comic books or graphic novels. You know, it, it, it always amazes some of my friends when I tell them uh, that a show like the new show iZombie is based on a comic book series. Um, I Also, I know people that didn't know that Ghost World was a graphic novel, um, Scott Pilgrim, so many. The genre of comic books, graphic novels is exploited just as much as any other form of literature in terms of buying rights to those properties to make movies or TV shows out of them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's just not uh, known as much. You know, people always seem to know when a movie based on a book is out, but they don't always seem to know outside of superheroes when a TV show or movie comes out that it's actually based on a comic book or graphic novel. Yeah. Which is, it has to be intentional on the part of the people that do publicity for movies. They must recognize that the the book background will lead to more people watching and not recognize the graphic novel background in the same way, I would think. But honestly, graphic novels are perfect for source materials for movies because they're already a combination of visuals and text. Storyboards. Right, right. exactly. They're they're almost like a like a rough draft storyboard. Mm. that has already found the powerful moment and the emotional moments and the intellectual moments uh, and surfaced them in the text and in the visuals uh, to make those, you know, pop. And, and also, so it's perfect. Exactly. And they also, they also have the pacing, at least the comic books do, because the comic books, you know, an issue, maybe it'll come out weekly, some come out monthly, whereas a novel, everything is in, one form, one book, and they have to figure out how to condense that into a two-hour movie, for example. Whereas comics, you know, you have already these short weekly segments. You know what I mean? The hard work is done for you. <laughs> it at least makes sure that there's something, um, there's not long periods of nothing in right. most graphic novels that, have, that are being built from episodic comic uh, issues. Because they've at least tried to make sure that there's something that has a resonance in each issue. Exactly. There's always got to be some kind of drama to make you wait for the next issue, right? So you've got all that suspense, especially movies. They want to be action-packed. They want to grab you. They want to have those emotional heartstrings or whatever the case may be, you know, tugged and, and have you on the edge of your seat. And, and comics have to do that week by week or month by month. So each uh, episode, each uh, book kind of ends with something to make you want more. Anyway, one of the things that I wanted to talk about is this difference, you know, or is there a difference between comic books and graphic novels and picture books or illustrated books? You know, these terms kind of get thrown around, and in my opinion, it's 
a marketing ploy. Some of it tied back to what you said, Scott, that, you know, it, they make movies based on books that somehow makes it a more legitimate art form than to say, oh, it's based on comic books. You know, does Captain America get the same ex- respect as Fault in Our Stars, you know? <laughs> well, I'm not sure it should, but okay. <laughs> no, but you know what I'm saying. You know, somehow it's, it's it, the fact that when you just associate comic books with superheroes, then you yeah. do have this kind of dichotomy where that's all people think, and and in a dismissive way, though, like that that right. all comics, all graphic novels are not worthy of. Um, Right, and then people don't realize that that's just an artifact of our own peculiar history, right? It's because superhero comics survived the Comics Authority Code, which got rid of all the adult content and all the interesting kind of difficult stuff, uh, made it unable to be published, and then once they did that, it was the superhero stuff that could still be published and continue going. And so in America, we think of comics as, or up until the last 20 years, we thought of comics as, you know, superhero stuff for kids, whereas like in Japan or other countries that have a comics tradition, it's never been just for kids or just superheroes. Um, and so the stigma that comics and graphic novels have in the U.S., I think, is largely a function of what we were thinking of when we were in the 70s and 80s and reading them at the end of the Comics Code era, not an actual you know expression of the limitations of the medium or the best use of the medium. Exactly. And to me, I mean, because I'm pretty big into reading comic books, there is a difference in a way between comic books and graphic novels in that comic books are serialized. And as Rania had said, you know, putting six issues of a comic together into a book you could call that a graphic novel. Generally in the trade, they call them trade paperbacks. So it's just collected editions, whether a hardcover or trade paperback. And then you kind of have this genre called graphic novels, which tend to be more, you know, one whole complete story as opposed to an ongoing. There's not multiple chapters uh, released in single issues. It's a self-contained story that may have chapters, like a novel has chapters, uh, but it's there's nothing, you know, meant to follow it unless they decide to write another graphic novel. But um, however, the terms have been used interchangeably, and a good example, and one that happens to really annoy me, is the example of The Walking Dead. The Walking <laughs> The Walking Dead is a comic book. It is an ongoing monthly comic book that's still going out. However, if you watch the credits at the, uh, at the beginning or the end of, of the Walking Dead TV series, it'll say, based on the graphic, graphic novel, novel by Robert Kirkman. And I'm yeah. like, really? L-O-L. <laughs> <laughs> right. It, I, I feel like that just exemplifies what Scott is saying in terms of, uh, you know, giving it legitimacy. Because it's easier to think of graphic novels than it is comic books. And you're right. I mean, The Walking Dead is a comic book. And I think, what is it? Alison Bechtel's Fun Home or Marjorie Satrapi's Persepolis. I think those are graphic novels. You know, they have a beginning, a middle and an end. And they don't, um, they don't continue after that. So I think that 
is what you're talking about. And in the library sphere, I think we tend to lump them all together at some point. You know, right. Graphic novels come here under this category. I now, don't know what else you would call a collection right. of six issues from Batman collected <laughs> into a single... Right. We call it a graphic I, novel. Yeah. I just once had it explained to me that anything that was in hardback and collected six issues was a graphic novel. And I was like, uh, Okay, so what's yeah, a softback with six good. issues or a hardback <laughs> with eight? What? Yeah. Well, <laughs> there well, there is no other word we have for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not what they're called. If you get the, uh, the diamond publications, if you get the magazine yeah. previews. Okay, so previews tells you what comics are coming out in the next month so that you can pre-order them and they're called they're just called hardcovers or trade paperbacks depending on if they're soft cover or hardcover so it'll say okay so uh, two comic book series by john layman issues one through five uh volume one trade paperback it's not called you know two graphic novel (laughs) so from uh, what i understand trade paperback is a term of art for a soft cover of a of a certain size range of the cover, and so they're they they would also call a those larger formatted paperback novels. You know the intermediary stage between hardback and mass market paperback. When you have mm-hmm. a, like a nicer, larger, you could potentially get it as a gift, but it's not as expensive as a hardback. That's also called a trade. So I right. think I think we're that that's more of a format. And you know I think graphic novel is more of a format. Too, as far as libraries are concerned, at least in publishing, you're right. It's graphic novel or it's trade. For libraries, once we get in the building, it's it's a graphic novel all the way. Or you know, we debate back and forth. What do we call them? Graphic novels because it implies a novelistic format. Or do we do graphic literature so we can include things like biographies in graphic novel form, or Shakespeare plays in graphic novel form, or uh, things like uh, collected short stories in graphic novel form. Maybe we should call it graphic literature instead of graphic novel, so people don't think it's a novel per se, but I mean, that's, that's fighting uphill because the, the, um, actual, you know, marketing term is graphic novel. And that's what everyone thinks it is when they think of graphic novel, no matter whether they're thinking of a collection of Spider-Man stories, uh, or a, you know, yeah. Sandman or fun home. Yeah. Well, why doesn't that title apply then to children's books, to illustrated books or picture books? Why don't they call those graphic novels? <laughs> Good question. Um, I think that uh, the ones, the ones for children that have that comic style format, we do end up putting in graphic novels, yeah, or like I think regular like old Baby picture Mouse. books, like, huh? Baby, Baby Mouse and yeah. like War at Ellesmere, something like that. Yeah, mm-hmm, exactly. And then some things we probably ought to put in there, but we don't. Like Captain Underpants is <laughs> not in graphic novels, though. Really, it's a graphic novel. Right. But then we don't put, you know, Three Little Pigs with a you know one picture per page and 12 words per page in graphic novels we put those over in you know picture books wouldn't you think something like harold and the purple crayon like wouldn't would you consider that a great graphic novel as well or i think that's the name of it i don't know it's like it's a kid's kids book i think it's harold and the purple crayon i don't know it's been a couple of decades since i read it i think so i can't remember it well enough to answer the question but it's it doesn't get parsed that way. Libraries don't put it in graphic novel. They put it somewhere else. And right. that, would be, that would be a cataloger question. Um, I do know that um, we, we moved our adult graphic novels to a separate section at the last library I worked at, Richmond Heights Memorial Library. And when we did, I got together with our cataloger, Ray, 
and talked about how to parse between what's going to go in graphic novels and what's going to stay over in 741.5 graphic illustrated works. Mm -hmm. Or I might have the subject heading wrong, but whatever. And basically what we came down to was if it is um, short, self-contained little bits like you see in Garfield or Calvin and Hobbes, then it stays over in 741.5. But if it's going to be longer form, so it's like a four or five page short story or a 64 page all one story, then it drops over to, to graphic novels. So it's really about the length of story to getting enclosed story in the work. And even then, it's there are so many, you know, one of the more creative art forms is the graphic novel or comics art form. People are finding new ways to explore that all the time. And so even with that very simple distinction of short form versus long or longer form, we still have plenty of things that fall right in the middle. And things like more like illustrated books, heavily illustrated, illustrated books, where do they land? Because it's a whole lot of text and a whole lot of graphics, uh, but they're not together <laughs> like right. the illustrated history of the world right uh, that kind of thing yeah or the cartoon guide to physics or whatever <laughs> mm-hmm. i think that's a must-have in every library because i've seen that in both of those titles in pretty much every library i've ever worked in sure <laughs> so that's pretty interesting though what you said scott about you know some of this being left to the, to the discretion of a cataloger you know, obviously there's some issues within the literary world itself about what's a comic book, what's a graphic novel, what's an illustrated book, what's a picture book, where, what should go where. Uh, but it sounds like within each library, there's also not clarity. It's kind of whatever the cataloger thinks. Is that, am I hearing that right? Or Well, it's both a science and an art. There's a whole lot of order and logic and structure to cataloging. But yeah. at the same time, everything falls in a crack somewhere. And so a cataloger also has to make judgments as to where things are going to land and how they're going to be described. I think you could also say that you want to put something, you have to consider your users as well. You want to put it where people are going to find it. So, um, Mm -hmm. you know, you could just put it under graphic novel and put all the graphic novels and things that might fall under that purview, not counting Calvin and Hobbes in that section. Um, that's one thing that you have to consider your user patterns. Where are they going to go to find it? Especially if you want material to be checked out. But One yeah, thing right. we put in that uh, criteria to parse between 741.5 and the graphic novel section was that we would put in graphic novel section anything that would appeal to a primarily graphic novel reader just so that we could catch those you know weird things. And because you know some things are just, you know, like uh, the stuff, um, is it Harvey Picar? That's all. Some of his collections are very much short stories, and they're all they're like one one panel gags or one page gags. And you get a collection of those short gags. Where do you put that? Well, graphic novel readers are going to be ones looking for Harvey Picar, not fans of Garfield. Right, right, right. exactly. Well, it's interesting because you know they say there's no coincidences, but as you know, I was thinking about discussing this topic on the podcast. I follow the Library of Congress on Twitter. And they had actually put out a, a tweet with a link to their article about their comic book collection. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it turns out that the Library of Congress has the largest publicly available collection of comic books in the U.S. And it's in their Serial and Government uh, Publications Division. They have over 6,000 titles of both U.S. and foreign 
comics for a total of 120,000 issues, primarily composed of original print books. Road trip. Yeah, yeah, I'm telling you, it's crazy. And they they have scattered titles between the years of 1930 and 1940, but starting in the 40s, they actually have complete issues like complete runs from the 40s on and in august of 2011 the library of congress signed an agreement with the small press expo allowing them to acquire independent comics and cartoon art forms that are not available through copyright deposit so Mm -hmm. they've also increased tremendously since that time um, their backlisting of of indie comics as well uh, what would you say in your library, Scott, and in other libraries that you guys have, have been in, how, how much of your collections in, um, can, consist of comics and graphic novels? be really hard to estimate. We have 80, around 80,000 books in our collection, according to a number I saw from like six, seven years ago. Wow. And I haven't uh, been able to do an estimate since then because I've just been too busy in the last year. However, the... Adult side graphic novels are taking up about probably five shelves, and the juvenile side graphic novels are probably taking up about three or four shelves. I don't know how many that is per shelf, but it's nowhere near 80,000. It's a very small portion of our collection, and it's a portion that I have, you know, recently we have made a determination that we are going to grow that collection uh, aggressively because they get huge cirque. And they, they kind of serve a, a special role of uh, not only being good for kind of the gateway drug to heavy novels, but also serving a role of providing uh, quick hit entertainment for people that don't have a lot of time. And there's, you know, a number of uh, teenagers that their primary reading will be graphic novels, you know, because they're, they're reading big books for school and they want something shorter, sharper, and visual to read between their big school books. And so those are all growing areas in, in, from what we can see from our circ numbers. And so we are growing our graphic novel collection um, very purposefully and pretty aggressively uh, starting in about July of this year. And what have you seen, Ron? I'd say the same for um, our library, which happens to be the library Scott used to work at, by the way. Um, <laughs> uh, it's a small portion, but it's growing. And I think part of the reason it's growing uh, it has to do with movies, and we can get into that in a little bit. But uh, um, I would say that the adult section has about five or six shelves full of graphic novels, and we buy more of them all the time. Uh, not just the superhero stuff, but also the one shots, or you know, so on and so forth. Um, Ask me to name some of the newer ones, and I totally couldn't do it right now. But <laughs> when the semester is over, I have plans. Let's just put it that way. Um, <laughs> And then the YA section is the one that has like most of, well, I can't even say that. I want to say there's like at least three to four shelves full of graphic novels there. Oh, it's more like eight. It's more like eight over there. Is it? Okay. I am trying to visualize that, that shelving unit in my head and, Unless up. they've weeded it down something fierce. <laughs> there was no, eight or it, nine it's still on the end there. of that uh, last thing, last mm. shelving unit. And I would say there's a shelf in the uh, kids section, at least, a sh- you know, where we put Baby Mouse and Ward Ellesmere and some other things. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'd say it's growing. And I'd say we pay attention to what comes out in graphic novel or 
that kind of format because there's definitely an audience for it. Sure. So, so you're right. saying that both of you guys are saying that even though you have relatively small offerings, they're pretty pretty popular, huh? Yes, absolutely. What age groups are, are you seeing? Is there any diversity amongst who, who hangs out in that area and checks out from those areas? I see, and I see a lot one? of diversity. We have uh, little kids that come in that, that are wanting graphic novel format, uh, all the way up to people that are my age and older who are, you know, every so often they want to deep dive into graphic novels for a while, which is what I do. You know, I'll read a book and a couple of books in a row, and then I'll read like five graphic novels um, in a row because I just want to kind of catch up on things or because I've heard of something really awesome that I want to go chase down. It's all ages. Um, like most library stuff, it's little kids, then a conspicuous gap of the teenagers, and then picks up again as adults. However, graphic novels have less of that conspicuous gap than other things. Yeah. I'd say I see just about the same thing as Scott in our library. Um, and I would also say there, too, there's kind of a circuit. Um, you see people, mostly adult users of graphic novels or whatever, and they come through, they read everything in a few months, you don't see them for a couple of months, they come back through, they pick out all the new stuff, and mm -hmm. then you don't see them again for a couple of months, and then they come back through and do it all over again. So they wait for us to get new stuff in, and then um, come in, pick it up, read it, return it, grab more, and then they're gone for a little bit. Mm -hmm. Now, do... do any of your libraries and your travels and, and experience uh, stock any single issues? I have seen it rarely in a couple of libraries. I think, you know, the trade paperbacks, the graphic novel formats are probably sturdier in terms of continuous circulation, but I was just curious if, if you guys have any single issue comics as well. I've seen them given library? out as prizes uh, yeah. for uh, special events, but never as being on the shelf for checkout and i'm not surprised one is they're just so short each individual issue that people would like read them in the time it took them to walk up to the desk and check it out <laughs> um, but also because it's a nightmare already trying to get the graphic novels to stand up and not become a big sloppy slidey goofy mess every day <laughs> Um, I can't even imagine how bad that would be if we were doing individual floppies with their slick covers and their easily bendable, foldable pages and their uh, easy ability to fall down in groups of 10 behind the uh, <laughs> shelving itself so we'd have to dig it out with a stick every morning. No, they're... <laughs> I, I, I don't want to start offering floppies. And if we do, we need to put them someplace besides a shelf. I feel like we'd have to have a dedicated cataloger just for floppy. It was like every Wednesday, just go get the shipment from the comic book shop and Yay. catalog, catalog, catalog. Or <laughs> I guess that would be every Thursday. But, right, right. You know. <laughs> but how much fun would that be? Like after this, reading this story about the Library of Congress, it's like, oh, I want to work there. <laughs> Part of it is also that I, at least whenever I do buying, I buy what's hot right now, but I also think about you know, buying the things that I'm going to think are going to have repeat readings going forward. And a trade paperback is a nice collection, suitable for repeat readings. You know, every few years going forward, more so than a floppy. All right. And um, you know, one one of the things that that I wanted to kind of touch on too, and we sort of have have mentioned it when we talked about the comics that that we've read as kids and what we're reading kind of now and 
I had mentioned that I got back into comics in 2007 because of The Blackest Night. So that was a whole DC thing. And I just became really, really heavy into the DC uh, universe. And then, Scott, you mentioned a lot of Marvel books. So, you know, you always have those factions, you know, the Marvel people and the DC people. <laughs> but, um, you know, but comics are so much more than that. I mean, it's not only just that they're more than superheroes. They're also more than DC and Marvel. Uh, yep. You know, you've got so many independent publishers, whether it's yeah. Fanta Graphics, Drawn in Quarterly, Image, IDW, and they're all putting out a wide, wide range of products. Some things are licensed, uh, stuff like IDW's got G.I. Joe and Star Wars and other uh, comics, but then a lot of it is uh, creator-owned, like Image does, you know, it's all creator-owned projects. So people that have been, maybe they've worked for Marvel, they've worked for DC, they yep. do, they still do superhero work, but they want to now express some of their own stuff that's not licensed, and they go over to Image, for example, and, and do their own thing. You know, Jeff Lemire is one like that, and, uh, you know, so there's, there's more to comics and graphic novels than just DC and Marvel. They just happen to dominate the market especially now that they're you know big multimedia conglomerates yeah absolutely it is so refreshing that we're finally seeing more variety in comics that it's not just these one or two genres and that we're seeing so many independent houses making works and not only are marvel and dc having their sub uh sub houses that produce you know different kinds of uh, works within their genres, but also you have things like um, like uh, Ed Brubaker writing great noir detective mm. stuff and dirty street stories and that kind of thing, which is a, a genre that sings to me. And so I am so glad for Ed Brubaker having the ability to write those now, right? And if you want something heavy, thoughtful, literary, yeah. there are so many different ways for that to happen now that weren't available you know 20 years ago the change in the way we think of comics that started with dark knight returns and watchmen has kind of blossomed now i think into a huge variety and honestly nowadays i occasionally read something marvel or dc uh, but most of what i read is really independent comic work uh, from some of these independent publishers uh, and then occasionally I'll pick up something because people say, oh, my goodness, this is this is a literary classic, a masterpiece. You need to read this. I'll occasionally pick up one of those as well. Absolutely. I agree. Um, you know, I, I don't read any DC anymore. Uh, everything I pick up now is pretty much, uh, you know, independent, creator-owned stuff. Uh, and it's it's a whole different world. I mean, there's a lot of good things going on in DC. You know, I love Scott Snyder's Batman, and I was heavily into that for a while. But, you know, DC and Marvel yeah. are constantly rebooting their universes. Marvel is doing it yet again, you know, reissuing a bunch of number so ones. So hard to and, keep up with all know, that stuff. Like, really, I'm <laughs> over it. Yeah, don't bother. Just read. But, you know, getting back to what you said earlier, sort of at the beginning of the conversation, you were talking about how controversial 
graphic novels and uh, comics are. Uh, they're kind of a flashpoint in the world of the library. In Absolutely. Terms of people questioning <laughs> why they're there and are they le- legitimate. You know? and, and, of course, comics have been the targeted target of being banned. You know, Banned Book Week is coming up, and several of the titles that we've all mentioned have all been banned, you know. Uh, Fun Home. You mentioned yeah. um, Persepolis and Fun Home and Watchmen and Dark Knight. And, uh, <laughs> you know, my favorite, Tank Girl. I love Tank Girl. It was a banned book. And Watchmen, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, uh, Sandman. You know, so what do you think that's all about? Like, what are people afraid of in comic and graphic novels? Go ahead, Rania. <laughs> I just was going to say that was a good question because I I don't know what the difference is between seeing it in a graphic novel and reading it in a book. And whatever it is, you know, some people would say graphic novels are graphic. And that's, I'm like, you're totally taking the definition in the wrong way here. I can, I can throw out a couple of ideas. Um, one is we have that dissonance between what we've come to expect from comics based oh, yeah. on the 70s, 80s, the end of the comics um, code, and what we see now and we have seen since the mid-80s with more adult, thoughtful, gritty, ugly, violent, or sexualized comics um, and comics of different genres besides Superman being super, Right. So there's right. one thing is that this that dissonance and people there's still a lot of people that don't realize that comics aren't about kids anymore. They're about all kinds of people. Some of them are for kids and some of them are for adults. And so when they pick up a comic that's made for adults, they're like, oh, "Someone wrote this for a 12 year old to read." It's like, no, no one wrote that for a 12 year old to read. That's a good read. point. That's a really good point. The other thing that I would say puts comics on the firing line is you can flip through them really quick and find pictures of boobies. <laughs> you have to read a book. And take a good yeah, long time. True. And whenever yeah. you read the description of boobies, it doesn't pop out as like, oh my goodness, those are boobies. In the same way that they do with comics. <laughs> right. <laughs> and and there yeah, are lots of legitimate you know, criticisms about comics too. You know, there are pictures of boobies. That's because, true. Because comics uh, tend to dwell on pictures of boobies. And we won't get into uh, superhero outfits at the moment. But <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> And I would say that superheroes are the main genre that that have the uh, breast fetish, if you will. Um, so yeah, it's a lot of sexualizing women for the fanboys, and um, so that's my other pet peeve, mm-hmm. if you will, is that DC and Marvel and and some other people in the comic book industry have actually come out and said and admitted that they're writing, you know, for middle-aged men or for young men, teenage men, whatever, uh, they completely marginalize their female yeah. audience, barely acknowledge that their female audience exists. And I don't know if either of you saw the PBS documentary, Superheroes, A Never-Ending Battle. I did not. Oh, it's awesome. You guys definitely need to check it out. It's like a five-part documentary series tracing the history of comic books from its early days uh, right up through the present and they talk about how actually women were the earliest adopters of reading comic books and actually outnumbered male readers for many 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 years yeah 
back before the comics code turned them all down into uh, superhero stories for boys, right? Yeah. Yeah, turned them into superhero stories for boys. And not that girls don't read superheroes, because I, I certainly do. I of love course. The Flash. I love Green Lantern. And for some reason, rather than try to look at as an industry, the comic book industry as an industry, looking at how did we lose these female readers, why did we stop caring about them? What do we do to draw them back in? They seem hell-bent on alienating us further. And that's one of the reasons I stopped reading DC. I have the same experience as you because I got really tired of, A, the reboots. You know, every few years or whatever, you have to keep up with the changes, who's who, who did what. Oh, there's a whole other universe we have to keep up. Oh, no, not happening. And then, you know, you have Wonder Woman and Black Widow and, you know, on both sides of the the spectrum, Supergirl. I don't see them as major players. And I feel like in part that's because the publisher doesn't really see them as major players. You know, you have the the trio. I think Scott and I talked about this once. And uh, you have the, the superhero triptych, so to speak. You have Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. And uh, on the Marvel side, I'm not sure who would be like a standout. Marvel doesn't. Marvel maybe. doesn't really play in the iconic right. space so that, as much as DC does. Yeah, but one of the reasons I went to uh, like independent publishers, like I think it, Revival with Image Comics, you know, they're starting to write female uh, heroes, and they do it really well. Also, these storylines are finite for the most part. Um, that's not true of every single one out there, but um, you know they're they're far more interesting. And yeah, I feel like they may have alienated some of their readership because that readership is expanding. I see girls checking out ElfQuest. I see, I don't know. I see. Well, if you get more of those independent comics in your collection, you're going to see more female right. females checking them out. Right. It's just, I'm kind of disenchanted with Marvel and DC right now, as much as I love being a fangirl. It's a conundrum for me, let me put it that way. There are inroads, there are attempts to make it better. Uh, Ms. Marvel. Yeah. um, Which I think is a DC title. Ms. Marvel, uh, not long ago, with a uh, teenage um, protagonist of the Muslim faith taking on Ms. Marvel powers. I read the first uh, graphic novel collection of that, and it, brilliant, brilliant, and really strong. And I think that's a deliberate attempt to try and cross that line. Now, I wouldn't know, don't, wouldn't say that the whole company is trying to do that. It's more like they've got little pockets that are uh, being given enough leeway to try and experiment. Imagine if you were in, in the 1980s or the 1970s, whenever everything was under this, you know, one size fits all. And there wasn't any space anymore. You had to go to, to truly independent comics to find anything outside of superheroes and Archie. And those truly independent comics is like, okay, let's see, which ones are the porn ones? <laughs> which ones have an actual story? <laughs> which ones, I mean, which ones are kind of like like our crumb stuff, which is like a little bit porny and a little bit kind of awesome? <laughs> what are you going to go for? Um, <laughs> when the, with a much more limited palette that was available back then, I think that blossoming of, comics that has happened in the last 15 years as far as the the opening up to different genres and varieties has helped that a lot not enough that there's no room for criticism right i think there's plenty of room for criticism but 
we would we we would maybe not even be aware enough of the issues to criticize if not for enough people being brought in with those broader more um, diverse comics to begin with to then start looking at dc and marvel and going oh wait why aren't they catching up Right, right, right. I did pick up uh, Ms. Marvel based on your recommendation, the Kamala Khan. I think it's a Marvel title, not a DC. Yeah, Marvel. Okay. I really like it so far. It's really good. And it's not just running around and punching stuff. It's like right. dealing with actual like relationships and thoughts and personal life and things like that, which is, for me at least, that's the stuff that always really sang to me, which is probably why I was more of a Marvel fan than a DC fan when I was a kid. <laughs> Because I want that like personal story. I am not as drawn in by the look at the new way to punch a monster to death. <laughs> I'm more drawn right. in by the uh, there's this you know personal emotional character driven plot that's going on that needs to be worked out. You know the, another great uh, example of that is the um, the Hawkeye series with Aha as uh, the artist yeah. I believe um, that yeah. came out a few years ago where it is it's Hawkeye from the Avengers on his off days trying to deal with some local punks and uh, barbecue and ugh, what a mess. <laughs> That's uh, Matt Fraction's a run, right? You mentioned something a few minutes ago, Scott. You're talking about the, like the last 15 years and, you know, X-Men came out in 2000 with Brian, you know, Brian Singer as the director. And I feel like that may have rejuvenated the, the comics, the interest in it, so on and so forth. And, you know, that you can take these stories of humans, you know, and play it out on a metaphorical background and mm -hmm. people will understand it. And I don't think people had realized, you know, what some of the core themes were in X-Men and New Mutants and, and things like that. And uh, I, I honestly think that the, the movies and like the series, you know, even though they're all their own things have come in and... Uh, Kind of rejuvenated an interest in that, the whole graphic novel and comic books, the situation. I guess I'm saying. Right. It's hard to imagine that they haven't brought new readers in uh, to comics right. with the, how huge these movies have been. Yeah. Well, it's funny because uh, you guys brought up Miss Marvel and and all the reasons that you love it and how great it is and I've heard great things about it from other people too and of course it's probably going to be canceled because <laughs> in this Marvel reboot I think that they, they may drop yeah, the title not. so of course you know this is this is what they do it, it's so crazy but it's interesting because you go especially in DC because again I'm more familiar with the DC universe you know I I read DC Comics, but I don't like their movies, and I don't read Marvel Comics, but I like the Marvel movies. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, But in the DC Universe, on all the TV shows, they have all these great, strong female characters. You know, you watch Arrow, and you've got, you know, Black Canary, and you've got Huntress, and you've got Felicity, and... You know, on The Flash, there's good, good strong female characters. Uh, Legends of Tomorrow coming out. You've got Hawkgirl and all, other strong... And Supergirls coming out. So all these women, strong women, are, are being featured heavily. They, they've got full character development, not even so much as in the comic book. And... So there's kind of this disconnect between what they're putting out in, in TV where they seem to be more concerned about reaching broader, 
broader audiences than in the comic books themselves where they still seem to be somewhat attached to the male audience and and what they think the male audience right. wants to see because I talked to I talked to a lot of guys that are um, you know comic book fans I listen to a lot of comic book podcasts and I hear these guys saying you know enough with the boobies and enough with the you know yeah. you wonder who they're listening to up there in those corporate offices if anybody I think that uh, strong female characters in comics the characters you named were all supporting characters and how strong right. they are really just so heavily depends on the writer and some have yeah. made very strong female characters in the background and others have used them as plot devices. And so it just depends on who the writer is. It doesn't get that consistent treatment like a main character or the main character's sidekick is going to get where the whole right. point of the book is to make them more um, well-developed and interesting. I think another podcast we could probably have a topic about what makes a, a female character strong and, you know, or just a, a female character as a protagonist. I sometimes dislike using the word strong female character because, you know, it implies, I think, that this there's something to measure up to in terms of, you know, you wouldn't say strong male character, so to speak, but that's this just me. True. So, Right, it's recognizing some kind of gulf in expectation. Yeah. Right. And, and you kind of hit the nail on the head, Scott, when you were talking about the fact that these were peripheral characters, women have been peripheral characters, sort of the the wife of, or the girlfriend of, or what have you, the mother of. That's exactly why these characters are able to be in the TV show. You know, I, I, I went to Long Beach Comic Expo, and Mark Guggenheim was there, uh, and, and Mark Guggenheim's wife actually is the showrunner on Agent Carter, uh, so she's always so, so funny. He does the DC TV show, she does the Marvel TV show. But anyway, he was talking about how, because I asked him a question at the panel about um, how concerned is he with continuity from the comic books to the TV show. And I brought up the point that characters that are in Arrow, like Felicity, never existed in the comic book series. You know, Diggle, there's no Diggle in the comic books. Uh, now, of course, since the show's been so crazy popular, they've launched... Uh, books around these characters but pride they were created by the show and he said that actually the reason why they were able to use these characters was because they really had no backstory you know like there wasn't this long entrenched history they weren't main characters so something like arrow's mother uh, moira she um she was in the comics but she was just sort of nothing there so they have the creative license to really now create outside of the comic in the tv show a whole backstory that now becomes a, a sort of canon and, and so all and since all these female characters happen to be those peripheral side characters we're now able to see them on tv and 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 have them be developed for the first time so it's kind of a double-edged sword in that regard you know Right. There's one more thing I want to have us talk about briefly, if it's okay, which is the idea that, that comics can be literature. And just really brief and then to give examples. But I'm sure that you've got, do you have a wrap-up already in mind, Judith? 
the one thing that I sort of wanted to touch on to kind of circle back to the beginning was this idea of, you know, which ties in, I guess, to what you're saying. Are comics a a legitimate form of of literature and why it would be okay for people to to read them? I mean, you talked about some of the stuff, uh, like from the 70s on, like the more adult nature of books and comics and graphic novels coming out that make people want to ban them. But, you know, some of this stuff actually started in the 50s with Dr. Wortham's book, uh, Seduction of the Innocent. You know, comic books at one time were gathered up and burned, and, you know, that's when the Comics Code Authority actually started, within the 50s. And so how much of this mentality of comic books as evil from the 50s still carries over today in 2015, so that, you know, people think, like, reading comics, like, like now it's all part of our psyche. It's not something that started in the 70s. It started in the 50s. And how do we overcome that and, and allow kids, you know, because my understanding is kids are still, if they're reading comic books in school, some teachers are saying, oh, you can't read that or put that away or, you know what I mean? So I, I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about that idea that if a kid is reading a comic book that it, they're somehow not reading if a kid is reading a comic book, they're somehow not reading. Oh, I know. I, I mean, I got that like my entire life. It's just absurd. I I don't know. It's absurd just, to uh, anyone who's actually read a fair number of graphic right. novels. And it's like one of those things you have to try it and like it. But I will say that there are people out there who just can't get into that. Graphic novels are not for them. Mm-hmm. It's like Which is fine. Yeah. It's like anything, though, you know, You if you want to try a new thing, go out and do it. If you've tried it and it's not for you, that's good. Um, it just, uh, you know, if you haven't tried it and I don't know, it just, uh, it, it's bewildering to me because, yeah, it's a, it's a whole way of telling a story. So it's like a book, it's different, and it, I think it's perfectly legitimate. And not only that, I think some of the stories are superior in... Um, graphic novel form rather than literature though i think um that comics code legacy lives on now in the expectations of people over a certain age and i don't know what that certain age is maybe 30 um that Mm. think of comics as being for kids and so when they see an exception or something that doesn't fit their preconceived notion they get up in arms yeah and i think it is reflected there there's nothing inherent in the form that would keep it from being uh, accessible to the same heights of mastery that other literature is, right? We've got text and we've got pictures, and both those things have been taken to great heights. In the hands of a master, there is just as much potential, I think, for literary heights in that combined text and image as there is in each of them individually. And we've seen some phenomenal examples of comics that will you know, change you when you read them that will have a, a emotional impact on you that will change the way you think about the world or how you perceive things. It happens all the time, but only those people that are open to the genre or to the format are willing to explore that and be changed in that way. Others, for whatever reason, they have a strong resistance. The same way there's a strong resistance to science fiction and a few other genres. All right. Absolutely. And more and more, 
if mainstream authors, if you will, are writing comic books. I mean, Guillermo del Toro has written comic books. George R. R. Martin has written comic books. Chuck Palahniuk just uh, released uh, the sequel to Fight Club in comic book huh. form. Uh, you know, I, I could go on and on about the number of literature novel legitimate, if you will, <laughs> authors who are uh, writing and dabbling in the comic book uh, world. You know, there are some great, great comic books out there, current ones that are out and others that really exemplify more of what you're talking about, Scott. Um, it's not all superheroes. You know, you have J did you read Jason Aaron's Scout? No. Oh, it's fantastic. And, and of course, Brian K. Vaughn with uh, Why the Last Man. Ex-Machina. Saga. Saga. Uh, you know, there's so many. And, and Brew Baker, you, you, I don't know if you read Fatal. That's awesome as well. Mm -hmm. uh, Matt Fraction, Sex Criminals. So there's just so much going on out there in the world. And, you know, that stigma that still kind of hangs out there in, in the universe um, about comics being second-class citizens in the world of, of literature, I, I think that just stems more from ignorance than experience. I think if people were actually picking them up and reading them, uh, they minds would change. Just to throw out a few more titles of really great ones, Mouse, of course, M-A-U-S, by Spiegelman, uh, Fun Home, um, From Hell by Alan Moore, which is a, an exploration of uh, Jack the Ripper, and you know there's a there's a company that produces Shakespeare plays in co in graphic novel format, and they have three like levels, so you can get Macbeth in full Shakespearean text with the images, Macbeth in a easy to read modern argot with images, and Macbeth in an edited it's it's actual Shakespeare, but it's um not the full text, right? So they've, they've cut out some of the some of the details. And so you can choose the level at which you want to explore Macbeth. And the fact that they can do that full text, every word of the play version tells you right there, you can get something really, mm -hmm. truly great in this format. Absolutely. I think you're just limited by your imagination uh, in terms of being a writer, you know, uh, what how you want to use the form. There's all kinds of creative and interesting things being done out there. Some other time we should get into the whole world of manga. Yeah. Yes. Yes, well, because, and even in talking about banned books, and, you know, you mentioned ElfQuest, that was a banned book, but, you know, even Dragon Ball was banned. <laughs> you know, it's like, really? Dragon Ball? Hey, Come well, on. There's some, there's some stuff uh, in Dragon Ball. I think Ball. also Grandma <laughs> Half or something, too. But, Yeah. I think it'd be mm -hmm. interesting to explore manga's effect on uh, comics produced in the United States as well. Yeah. Because there's a definite trend there in the artwork and so on and so forth. But Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, and you know, yeah, manga, it, definitely, that, that's a, a whole subject. Because there's lots of genres and subgenres in manga as well. Uh, but now, it, it, at one time interest in anime and manga really, really peaked in this country. I would say like in the 80s and 90s, um, and there used to be a lot of anime festivals and, you know, like San Diego Comic-Con yeah. has a big anime and manga thing, but they used to have their own. Now, 
the interest has kind of waned a lot. And now here in LA, we have Anime Expo, which is the largest uh, anime and manga expo left in in the country. And there's a few smaller scattered ones, but um, it's it's that's a, a very interesting format and. I'm really excited that Netflix now has a lot of the anime. You can watch Attack on Titan, and so many of the shows now are are on Netflix, so that's exciting. What is something that you read in the last month? Nothing, because I haven't had time to read anything (laughs) in the last month. (laughs) Well, there's two things. One thing that just finished, the the very last of the DC books that that I was reading, which is actually a Vertigo title, is The Unwritten. Hmm. And that's by um, Mike Carey and Peter Gross. And The Unwritten is a phenomenal series. It was one of the last comic book series that I was still buying in single issues. So I have every single issue. Wow. Uh, But they just wrapped up in issue 60. And so that's done. So now, like, I'm totally out of the DC uh, corporate world there in, in the comic, as far as comic books, not TV shows. Right. It, what I read now, I love, which is also wrapping up, um, is Chew. I don't know if either of you have read, read Chew uh, by John Lehman with art by Rob Guillory. It's uh, an image comic, and it's about this guy, Tony Chu, who works for the FDA, and anything he eats, he's a sibopath. I don't know if I'm saying that right. C i b o p a s p a t h. Anything he he eats or puts in his mouth, he can get information hmm. from that. You know, so he he can find out the history. So when he was he was originally in the police department, and uh, when they were trying to solve a crime, you know, he would put something in his mouth, and he'd be able to get information so it's sort of like i zombie i don't know if you're watching the tv show but the comic book i zombie came out at a similar time to chew so there were some comparisons except tony chew is not a zombie (laughs) and there's a lot more going on in chew i mean i zombie was just 28 issues and it was fun and also not like the, the tv series they changed some things on the tv show but um it's very good i really love it and uh, so that's wrapping up too that's going to be done it's just starting its final arc of five issues so I, then I have a whole big pile of comics just like I have a whole big pile of regular books that I have to read so <laughs> I am I'm reading Lumberjanes uh, which I oh, love yeah. it's mm-hmm. just like if I had been at camp and all the superstitious stuff happened and that was really a lot of fun. So, and I look forward to the rest of the series. Um, and I'm currently working on Revival by Tim Seeley, and which yeah. I'm also liking quite a bit. And, and is that is Mike Norton still doing the art for that? Right? Isn't it Tim Seeley and Mike Norton? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I have mm-hmm. to go look at the book in the corner of my room, and that's too far away. So, <laughs> at the moment. But yeah, really good stuff, and I'm quite enjoying it. So. And, and, and thinking of Mike Norton, I know we're over time here, but thinking about Mike Norton, that brings me to the whole world of webcomics because he does Battle Pug, and that's on that's a webcomic. And there's several other people that write comics online. They're all this whole this whole genre of webcomics now too, which is which is pretty cool. Cool. So yeah. 
Library Land is an independent podcast. We have no advertisers or sponsors. Thoughts and opinions expressed are solely those of each podcast contributor and are not reflective of any group or organization and should not be taken as such. Music is by Ben Sound at www.bensound.com slash royalty dash free dash music. We encourage listener feedback and participation at librarylandpodcast.blogspot.com at librarylandpod on Twitter Libraryland at Outlook.com and Facebook.com slash Libraryland Podcast. Thank you. Uh, Rania was the one that was that was uh, slowed, so let's let Rania read the song this time. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's going to be All easy right, to catch up go. with the slow person. <laughs> there was a farmer Rania had a had dog, dog, and Bingo, and Bingo was his name. B-I-N-G-O. 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 Bingo was his name. Oh my ah. God! What was that? <laughs> All oh, right, here's, that was awesome. <laughs> here, here's another trick. We'll try this trick too, and between the two of them, hopefully, I can get something synced. <laughs>